You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. I want to welcome, um, especially we have more kiddos in the room today than we normally do, so I want to say good morning to you as well, kids. Glad that you guys are here today with us. It's a good reminder, by the way, it's good to have you guys in here with us. It's a good reminder of that you are an important part of this church. In a lot of weeks, you're back there learning, and uh, we're glad that you're in here learning. I know many of you are in school, and you have a teacher, and it's their job to care for you and to teach you reading or spelling or how to not shoot spitwads in the lunchroom. You know who you are. Um, In many ways, that's part of what my job and our other pastor's job is here, is to care for you and to help you learn the truths of God and to... Uh, help you know the great love of God for you and to teach you the Bible. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're starting a new sermon series that we're calling In the Storm. Um, If you've been with us for a while, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark. So we've spent 28 weeks studying Mark's Gospel. We're going to push pause on Mark. We're going to take the Gospel of Mark, kind of put it on the shelf. We'll pull it back out in 2023, and we'll move from chapter 10 forward in Mark's Gospel during the season of Lent. We'll We'll walk with Jesus toward the cross Good Friday, and then celebrate Easter in Mark's gospel. But in the meantime, we're going to put that on the shelf, and we're starting a new series that we're calling In the Storm. Um, At least once a year, we like to take a break from our normal diet of preaching, which is working through books of the Bible, and to have more of a topical series. And we do that for the reason of equipping. That's our hope, is that this series will help equip us to know Jesus, to abide in his love, and to follow Jesus in our everyday lives. So let me pray for us. And then we'll jump in. Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the gift of the gathered church. What a grace it is. What a privilege it is to be in the house of God. And so as we turn to your word this morning, as we kick off this new series, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak through your word by the power of your spirit, that you would provide for us the faith, the encouragement, the conviction, whatever it might be that we need from you this morning, that you would meet us, open us up to receive the truth grace that you offer us in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was having a conversation with a mentor of mine, a pastor that has mentored me over the years, and we were discussing some of the challenges that he was facing in his church at the time. Um, He usually would call me to check in on me and see how I was doing, and this time I'd heard that he was not doing too well, and so I thought I would call him and, and, uh, and care for him, and so I called him and just asked him how he was doing, and here's what he said to me. I'll never forget this. He said, in our church right now, Jordan, we are experiencing an avalanche of sorrow. An avalanche of sorrow. I want you to picture an avalanche with me for a minute. Think about how avalanches work. There's some kind of movement, something that happens at the top, and then all of a sudden, it just feels like it gains momentum, coming down, coming down, coming down, coming down. There's really hopelessness as you stand under it. It crushes everything in its path. He said, we're experiencing in our church an avalanche of sorrow. He went on to tell me about the difficulty that they were experiencing in their church. They were really experiencing it at every level inside of a local church. It started with, there was an an elder, one of their pastors that had fallen in to some sinful patterns in his life that had gone unconfessed and hidden and that had come to the light and so that person's uh, sin was affecting the rest of the church and there was sorrow that was being experienced over a brother and a leader in the church who had fallen into sin. That same week there was a female staff member at the church who they found out had experienced a a miscarriage after her and her husband had walked a long road with infertility. That same very week 
a college student in their church who had been open and honest about their battle with depression. News had come that that college student had made a horrible, irreversible choice and had lost their life that week. On top of all of this, there were multiple marriages in the church that they were counseling people, marriages that were on the brink. And the very morning that I called my mentor to talk to him and ask him how he was doing, he had found out that one of his closest personal friends had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. An avalanche of sorrow. An avalanche of sorrow. Those of you who have experienced real sorrow in this life know this feeling. The, the gut punch, the pain, the, the weak knees, the disorientation of a, something that felt so sure and so secure like a marriage falling apart or a child who is terminally ill or losing your job and your future being in jeopardy, a cancer diagnosis or perhaps your own long, hard, sorrowful battle with infertility. As he was sharing where he was at with me, I was reminded of the fact that there, there is a complexity to pain in this life, isn't there? Like there are many forms of sorrow, many forms of struggle. I think we have a graphic. There's a complexity of pain. And this is important for us as we begin this new series to understand this. That sometimes there are sufferings and struggles and sorrows in our, in our life that are due to our own misguided worship. Okay, Some of us our own sin and our own idolatry. There are consequences to sin. Sin leads to death, and sometimes that's an emotional or physical, uh, relational death. But there are consequences of our own misguided worship. And so sometimes our own sin can create sorrow and pain in our life. But it's not always just our own sin. We are sinful people who live in a fallen world. We are born into uh, uh, original sin, and we share life, and we live alongside other sinners, and many of us have experienced the sorrow and the pain due to being wounded by the sins of others. Your sin is never just between you and God. It is primarily between you and God, but when we fall into sin, shrapnel often flies, and it hits those around us that love us and care about us. And so many of you maybe carry wounds from your childhood or wounds from a relationship or wounds from a moment or from a marriage that you carry with you that create sufferings and sorrows in your life. We also are weak people. We live uh, this life in fallen bodies. This is what we believe about the Christian life. This is why as, as grateful as we are for the common graces and advances of medicine and sci science and, and, uh, and doctors and therapy, we, we still can't stop the decay of our body, can we? We slow it down, but we can't stop it. So we are weak, limited people. We can lose our sight and we lose our hair, amen, and we lose our strength, and we can lose our mind. We are weak people. And then there is certainly an element of warfare, spiritual warfare. We live in a world of darkness where there is a real enemy who the scriptures tell us that he comes to kill, still, and destroy, that he prowls like a roaring lion seeking ones to devour. We live in a world where there's spiritual forces, there's the demonic reality, and there is spiritual warfare in our life. There is a complexity to pain in this life. So as my mentor was telling me this story about all that was going on in their church, I was reminded of how complex it is and how people suffer and struggle in many ways. I've experienced that in my own life as a pastor. 
people coming into the office or meeting people for coffee. And there's a complexity to our sorrow and a complexity to our struggle. And as we were having this conversation, I did take the opportunity because he has been a mentor of mine to learn from him as much as I possibly could, knowing that there might be a day where our church is standing under the avalanche of sorrow as well. And so I said, Dusty, what are you learning? What are you learning in this season? And I'll never forget his answer. He paused for a few seconds. He took a deep breath. And he said, I am learning that we have failed to disciple people in sorrow. He said, our people don't know what to do with suffering. We failed to disciple people in sorrow. Our people don't know what to do with suffering. I want you to know that I've been thinking about that answer that he gave me ever since then. Are we discipling people for suffering? Have we equipped the church to be prepared for dark days, to be a people of resilient faith, a people of enduring hope, a people who know how to abide in the love of God, even in the storms of life? In other words, do we have a theology of suffering? Do we have a theology of suffering? You know, in the church, we spend a lot of time doing discipleship. We, we disciple people how to read their Bible and how to pray and how to find community and how to serve and how to tithe and how to give. And, 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 but do we disciple people for suffering? You know, when I read the New Testament, it is abundantly clear that the New Testament wants us to be prepared for suffering, that the apostles spent time equipping and discipling the early churches for suffering. I want to give you just a few examples of this. First, in Acts chapter 14. We see it in Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul has been planting churches. He's been proclaiming the gospel. People are coming to faith. He's uh, discipling them in community. Look at what Acts chapter 14 says. It says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They're strengthening the souls. That means they're teaching. They're teaching people the truth about God, about who he is now and how to live for Jesus in light of the resurrection. Look what it says. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then next he says, then, then they appoint elders. Like discipling the church for suffering was as important as appointing elders to lead the church. Philippians 1.29. Paul says this in Philippians 1.29. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, so for the glory of Jesus, you should not only believe in him, but also what? Suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you. That, that word means it's been generously offered to you. That you might not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This summer, my wife and I were trying to teach our boys how to read their Bible and how to listen for God's voice as they read their Bible. And so we read Philippians this summer with them, and we would just read a, a chunk of text at a time, and, and then we would sit down with them, and we would say, okay, go read it, and, then, and I want you to think about what's one thing that stood out to you, was the question that we would ask, and then we would talk about that one thing, and we were trying to help, help them listen for God's voice, and so uh, during this section of the text, one of my children said this verse, Philippians 1.29, I want you to try and explain that to a child. It's been, God has graced to you, not only to believe in him, what a gift to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. We went to Romans 8.28, where Paul says in Romans 8.28 that in all things you can believe that God has your back. 
that he's working for your good, that he'll even use sufferings in this life for his glory and for your good. And you know, sometimes God does that. God will allow suffering in our life. He will allow sorrow in our life because he's a generous God. Sometimes our hands are too tight on the things of the world or uh, we are loving uh, the things of the world too much and he'll allow those things to loosen our hands so that we might reorient our affection and reorder our loves. In fact, when you read Job, how many of you ever read the book of Job? If you've never read the book of Job, I want to encourage you to do so even in this series. While we're in this series, you read the book of Job and it seems that by the, you get to the end, Job chapter 42, verse 5, and Job says this after he endures much suffering where God allows the enemy to afflict him. God generously allows, he grants it to afflict him. And Job, you read Job's sorrow, you read, you read his heartache, you read his cries, you read, the, you read about the, the, the advice from his phony friends who were just telling him to suck it up, buttercup, you know, you'll get through this. And Job says this at the end, he says, I have heard reports about you, God, but now, after suffering, my eyes have seen you. Isn't that amazing? It's mysterious the way that God works and the way that God repurposes our suffering and our sorrows. James 1 two through four. So it's not just Paul that's in on this suffering thing. It's also James. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Expect sufferings. You should expect it and you should receive it with joy for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. God is working. God is purposing our trials and our afflictions. Romans 8, 16 through 18, listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That is profound and that is amazing. The Spirit is given to you to testify to you that you are God's child. Not only are you God's child, but God has a glorious inheritance awaiting you. But look at what he says next. Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There is a theology of suffering in the New Testament among the New Testament churches Christians are to expect suffering. Nobody wants this or wishes it in their life. Nobody goes to bed at night and prays, God, would you help me? Uh, to, would you bring suffering into my life tomorrow? Nobody prays that. But perhaps we should go to bed at night and pray, God, we do not know what tomorrow holds or what next week holds or what next month holds. But if the storm would roll in, Lord Jesus, would you work for my good? Would you remind me of who you are? Would you keep me in your love? Would you prepare me for glory? You see, here's what we must be certain of, that the New Testament writers are certain of, that Jesus Christ is God's answer to the total brokenness of this world, that the gospel is good news for all of our pain and all of our sorrow, that the, Jesus Christ is God's answer, yes, for our personal sin, but also the answer for our wounds and for our weakness and for the attacks and the arrows of the enemy that assault us. In other words, God is, Jesus is not only God's provision for our personal sin, but for our suffering, for our sorrows, and for our afflictions. The sorrowful have a Savior in Jesus. See, that's what the apostles are pointing to in all of these texts. Because of Jesus, because of his perfect life, 
because of his real suffering death on a Roman cross, because of his empty tomb and his glorious resurrection, and because of his promised second coming, we as Christians here today have access to something that this world does not have in sorrow. We have access to a risen Savior, a risen Savior who lives to pour out grace and mercy upon us. We have access to a living healer who has given us his spirit, who will strengthen us in our weakness and who will provide for us everything that we need when we come to him. We have access to a reigning provider, a God, a father of all love and of all grace and of all light who provides for us when we turn to him. We have access to King Jesus, King Jesus who stood himself under the avalanche of all human sin and suffering at the cross for you. See, that's the good news of the gospel. That though he were God, he took on human likeness for you. Though he never sinned, he bore God's wrath for you, a sinner. Though he were perfect in every way, he was lashed and mocked and mistreated for you, the wounded. Though he were holy and perfect, he experienced weakness in his physical body, even to the point of death for you who are weak. He took every arrow of Satan's attacks and overcame all of his evil schemes for you who are afflicted. And he did this to be the propitiation, the payment for your every sin, and to be the artifact of God's love for your every sorrow. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Jesus on the cross is the artifact of God's love for you and for your every sorrow. Maybe You've had days where you've wondered, does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Can God really forgive me? Can God really help me? You know, when we wonder those things, the apostles, what they're telling us in these texts is to look back to the historical Jesus. He is the artifact of God's love. His work on the cross is the payment for you, and his resurrection is the receipt. He's the artifact of God's love. Look at him. Look what he's done. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God is with you. Yes, God has made a way for you. What good news that we have in the gospel. And so when we look at the New Testament, it's clear there's a theology of suffering. Christians need it. If we don't have it, we won't endure and hope. We won't have resilient faith. We won't abide in God's love in the storms of life. But when we do, there is a buffet of grace for us to access. In other words, once we have a theology of suffering, once we're aware of it and understand it, then the next step for us is to apply it. How do we apply the good news of the gospel, the good news of Christ suffering for us in our stead? How do we apply that to our life every day? How do we apply that to our life today if you're suffering, tomorrow or in the future? What does it look like for us, Redeemer, to be a church that is discipled in sorrow, that is equipped in suffering, that's a people of resilient faith and enduring hope that abides in God's love in the storm. Well, that's what I want to point us to with the rest of our time this morning. I want to give us a simple framework, really simple framework, for how we endure in hope, abide in God's love even in the storms. How do we do that? We do it with our minds set on Christ. We do it with Christ ruling our hearts and guiding our actions. Mind, heart, hands head, heart, hands. With our minds set on Christ, Christ ruling our heart and guiding our actions. First, 
we must stay sober-minded. We must stay sober-minded in the storms. Um, Christians, perhaps even more than non-believers, can feel alone and abandoned by God in times of suffering. We can start to think what the Puritan John Owen called hard thoughts about God. How many of you ever thought hard thoughts about God? Yeah, if you're, it's a safe place. More of you could raise your hand. When I say hard thoughts about God, I'm not talking about honest questions about God. Any, any faith worth building your life on is a faith worth questioning. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about distorted thoughts about God. Distorted thoughts about God. We can start to think when suffering or sorrow sets in in our life, when uncertainty or disappointment rolls in, we can start to think, God, God is angry. God is cruel. God is unloving. God is not present. God is not caring. See, those are hard thoughts about God. Those are thoughts that push us away from God rather than toward God. Those are thoughts that propel us into isolation and into despair rather than into the care of God and into the care of God's people. See, those of you who have suffered know that the first battle of faith is a battle of the mind. Amen? It's a battle of the mind. In fact, one of the things that jumped out to me as I was preparing for this series is how many times the scriptures call us to be sober-minded in suffering. It's, it's all over the New Testament, especially in the text about suffering. He's saying, guard your mind. The scriptures say, be sober in your thinking, because that's the, that's the first battleground. I remember, that's the first attack of our sensibilities is our mind. I remember um, as a kid, I grew up in a, a southeast Texas. Thunderstorms are normal, and so are small county roads. And we were driving down a small county road. My dad was driving. It was a heavy thunderstorm. Me and my brother were in the back making a bunch of noise, uh, being yahoos in the back seat. And I remember my dad turning around and saying to us, he said, be quiet, I can't see. I remember thinking, what? You can't see. But if you've suffered, you understand this, don't you? You understand this. That when dark clouds roll in and, and, and when hard times, like, you're like, I can't think. I can't think clearly. See, the first step of the enemy is to attack our thinking. And so the scriptures call us to be sober-minded. Look at 2 Timothy 4.5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 5.8-9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be sober-minded. You're not alone. You're not alone. Remember who God is. Remember what he's really like. You see, what we think and how we think about God, about ourselves, about this world, it will shape our responses and our actions in the storm more than anything else. You see, I think that this right here what we think and how we think about God in the midst of suffering reveals our lack of discipleship and suffering more than anything else. Whether it's because of false teaching or prosperity gospel or easy believism in the church, where the church, we're, what we're doing today is nothing more than a spiritual pep rally. 
or whether it be because of the strong current of a me-centered world that we live in. Either way, many of us will capsize in the storm because we aren't thinking clearly, we aren't thinking soberly about God, about ourselves, and about our world. What do I mean? How do you view God? That will come into question when the storms of life roll in. How do you view God? Is God a helicopter parent or is God a strong tower? What is he? You know, some people will start to view God and think, think that God is like this helicopter parent, right? His job is to kind of hover over my life and protect me and make sure that I don't ever get hurt and provide me with all the comforts and entertainments and give me my best life now, you know? That's the helicopter view of God versus what the scriptures are clear about, that God is a strong tower, the scriptures say, that the righteous run into him and are safe. That's who he is. He's a refuge to the afflicted, so much so that he sent his own son into this world to save us, to redeem us, and to rescue us from a world of sin and death. How do we view God when we're in the storm? We must be sober-minded in our thinking. What about how we view ourselves? You know, the real temptation of the enemy is going to cause us to think hard thoughts about God and think, God, why me? And it's going to bring into question, how do we view ourselves? Do we view ourselves as owed something by God? Or do we view ourselves as sinners who are indebted to God? But for God's grace, right? If I view myself as a sinner indebted to God, then I realize that anything but death in this life is grace from God. Anything but death. And that my life, every breath that I breathe is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace at the hand of a merciful God. And when I do encounter sufferings and trials, he is with me and I will endure until glory. Amen? How do I view myself? As owed or indebted? And what about how we view this world? You know, some of us view this life like it's a playground. Like, like this is, you know, life is for me, YOLO, uh, have as much fun as possible. Life is my playground. Or do we view the world, as the scriptures tell us, that it's more like God's renovation project? How many of you ever lived in the midst of a home reno? You know that if you've lived in the midst of a home reno, that sometimes when you're brewing coffee in the morning, you need to wear a hard hat, you know? And that's the biblical picture of God's world. It is groaning for redemption, the scriptures say. It is marred, it is broken. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. We live in a sinful world. Trust him, walk with him. And so how do we, how, how do we think? That's the first thing, our mind. What do we think? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about this world that we live in. And as you read the New Testament, it, it becomes clear that our minds must stay shaped by these biblical truths if we're going to access faith, hope, and love that is available to sinners and sufferers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's not just a battle of our mind. It's not just a battle of our mind. We don't think our way out of suffering. We're more than just brains on a stick. We're a whole people. And so it's not just our minds, it also involves our heart and our hands, our, our heart and our life. So we must stay sober-minded, but we must also acknowledge the gift that God has given us of emotions. We must acknowledge our emotions, and we must form right habits. I want you to know that emotions and habits are married together. They go together, right? We feel, and what we feel leads us to do. I'm stressed. I'm going to buy a pint of ice cream. Amen? Anybody out there? We feel and it leads us to do. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm going to veg on Netflix. Emotions, habits. I'm angry. I'm going to gossip. 
He'll tear somebody down, get justice. Emotions, habits. If we're going to be a people that have resilient faith, that endure in hope, and that abide in the ocean of God's great love for sinners and sufferers, we must acknowledge our emotions and form right habits. Emotions tell us the truth. Your emotions tell you the truth. They aren't the truth, but they tell you the truth. Your emotions are like the lights on the dashboard of your car. You with me? They tell you something about your soul. Listen to what Zach Eswine writes in his book, Spurgeon's Sorrow. Eswine says, In this fallen world, sadness and emotion is an act of sanity. Our tears are the testimony of the sane. Your emotions are telling you something about what's true about you and about God and about this world. Another author said it this way. He said, grief is God's gift to you. It's how we get through pain. We grieve. Emotions are telling you something. You could say the same thing about fear and anxiety. To feel fear and to respond and feel anxiety. It's telling you something. This world is chaotic and it's hectic. And I am small and I'm a human. I'm not the sovereign. I'm not in control. Emotions tell us the truth. Emotions speak to us and they move us. You can't unlink your emotions and your habits. We feel and we do. Here's the question. What do you do with what you feel? Your habits will either sink or sail your spiritual lives when you're in the storm. So what I want to do is I just want to give you four really practical steps to help us be a people that not only have a theology of suffering, but apply it to our daily life. Four things that help us be sober-minded, acknowledging our emotions, and forming right habits. Four things, homework, that you can apply this week. Like, you could do this this week, because guess what's going to happen this week? Lights on the dashboard of your soul are going to start going off this week, this afternoon. Yeah. Four things. Two Fs, two Ts, two Gs, two Fs. You're welcome if you're taking notes. Two Fs, two Ts, two Gs, two Fs. First of all, feel your feelings. Feel your feelings. Feelings are a gift. Emotions are a gift from God. Parents, don't teach your children to stuff their emotions. Feel your feelings. We are not called to be Stoics. The scriptures say that we rejoice with those who rejoice, that we are excited and we're filled with joy and we give thanks for all of God's abundant grace. And the scriptures also say that we what? Weep with those who weep. That we grieve, that we cry, that we wail. Feel your feelings. We give thanks, we lament, we party, and we pray. This means that negative emotion and intense feelings of negative emotion are not sinful. Please hear me. To feel depressed is not sinful. You hear that? To feel anxious is not sinful. To feel angry is not sinful. What do the scriptures say in the book of Ephesians? Be angry and do not sin. Feel your feelings. You see, when we suppress or stuff our feelings, we never get to truth-telling. Tell the truth. Two T's. Feel your feelings. Tell the truth. When we suppress our feelings, 
we never get to truth-telling. We never bring to God the real me. (laughs) I never tell the truth to God. I just kind of stuff it, and I keep pretending with God, with others. And in doing so, we miss an opportunity to go to our loving Father and to receive his love and his compassion and his peace. What we do when we stuff our feelings and we don't feel them, we don't tell the truth to God about them. Instead, we run from God rather than to God. We run to something else to be our source, to be our refuge, to be our strength, to be our anchor and our buoy instead of running to God. And we miss an opportunity. I want you to know that this is deeply biblical to feel your feelings and then to tell the truth to God. We're going to talk about this more as we move forward in this series. We're going to look at biblical examples. We're going to look at David in Psalm 13 who says to God, My bones are wasting away. How long, O oh God, he says. He's telling the truth to God. He's feeling his deep sense of sorrow and sadness. We'll look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is so anxious about what God has put in front of him and what God's called him to in his life that he says, I wish that I had never been born. He tells God that. He tells the truth to God. He's honest with God. Feel your feelings. Tell the truth. God, I'm afraid for my future. God, I'm angry about what has happened. God, I'm worried about my child. God, I'm disappointed and I'm sad about my marriage. See, when we do this, we say to God, God, I am a human. I am not self-sufficient. I am not my own savior. I am not king. I am not the sovereign. I am a human, and I need you. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And I want you to know that God loves this, that he delights in this. In fact, there's a whole book in the Bible that's called Lamentations. What should that tell us? That should tell you that your honest prayers of lament before God are as much as worship as anything else that you do. Feel your feelings. Tell the truth. Bring your real self to God. Jesus' blood is powerful enough that you don't have to filter your feelings with the Father. Two G's. Give it to God. Feel your feelings. Tell the truth. Give it to God. This means renew your faith. Really give it to him. Entrust it. Entrust your circumstances. Entrust yourself to him afresh, anew. See, this is where scripture memory becomes really, really helpful. If you're not memorizing scripture, then you're losing the battle in the storm. This is where scripture memory becomes really helpful. Um, Galatians 2.20 has been a verse that God has used in my life over and over again to help me give it to God, help me entrust my life to him afresh and anew. Galatians 2.20 says this. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life I live in the body, this earthly, fleshly life. I live by faith in the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. God, I'm I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling fearful. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling worried. I'm feeling out of control. But I'm going to look to you, the artifact of your love for me, God. I'm going to live by faith in you. You've sent your Son. I am in you. You are in me. I'm going to walk by faith today. I'm entrusting myself to you, oh God. Scripture memory, it's critical. Psalm 131 is another a uh, way that memorizing scripture has helped me entrust my life to God over and over again. Fill my feelings. I go to God. I don't, go for, I don't run from him. I go to him. I tell him the truth. And then I give it to him. I renew my faith. Psalm 131. It says, my eyes are not lifted too high. I will not occupy myself with things that are too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul before you. O Israel, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. God, I'm worried and I'm fearful. My daughter is starting kindergarten this week, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a child with its mother. I want to occupy myself with things I can't control. I'm giving it to you. Two F's, two T's, two G's, two F's, kind of. 
Phone a friend. Phone a friend. <laughs> Feel your feelings. <clears throat> Tell the truth. Give it to God. Phone a friend. You know why, how most people, they don't endure. People who don't endure in the storms of life, it's because the enemy dupes them to thinking they're the only ones suffering. Embrace the gift of the church. You know why we're doing this series? Because there's too many Christians that have people in their life, brothers and sisters that love them, that have pastors who are called and ready and willing to care for them, who suffer alone. Phone a friend. Embrace the gift of a church, of the church. You'll have opportunities this week to practice this, I promise. As we close, I want you to know that today's sermon, it's really meant to be nothing more than a foundation for this series. To answer the question, why? Why are we doing this? Why are we taking eight weeks to equip the church? Because we need a theology of suffering. It's to outline for us just some real practical steps here at the beginning of this series to learn how to endure in hope, to be strengthened in faith, to abide in the love of God that is made manifest among us by his Son and by his Spirit. And as this series moves forward, we're going to go deeper, we're going to address issues of much greater complexity, including the complexity of those living with mental health challenges. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about for those who are ensnared in deep ruts of sinful patterns and addictive behaviors, things that have gone unchecked and unconfessed for years and years, people who are what the Bible calls ensnared in the schemes of the enemy. We're going to talk about that. It's going to get more complex. Those who are feeling and experiencing the strongholds of depression and grief and shame, and I know that many of you might be in those places. Others of you might not be yet, but you will be because you are a fallen person, a sinner living in a world of sin and death. Certainly all of you have relationships with other people who are in these storms, in these places. We're doing this because these are all things that the church has avoided for far too long. I read a stat from Barna last week that said 60% of pastors say they rarely talk about suffering from the pulpit. 60%. Yet 100% of human beings on this earth suffer. The scriptures don't avoid this issue. I hope you've seen that this morning. We're doing this because the sorrowing have a savior and his name is Jesus. We're doing this because Jesus tells us in John 10, 10 that while the enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, he has come that we may have life and life abundantly. Life in its fullest is what he says. And if you've heard nothing else today, would you hear this? When Jesus says life in the fullest, he's come to give life in the fullest, he does not mean life without suffering, life without pain, life without grief, life without sorrow or disappointment. He doesn't mean positive, encouraging, K-love all the time. That's not what he means. That's not at all what he means. We've believed that lie for far too long. What Jesus says this, what he means, is he means life of cross and resurrection. He means a life with God in your midst, in the storm, who is accompanying you by his Spirit, through suffering, a God who among his church is shepherding us into glory. It's not life without grief, but it's life with one who carried every bit of our grief up Calvary's hill. It's not life without tears, but it's life with the one who will come again and who will wipe every tear from every eye and will say, it is finished. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. All things new. Amen? What a Savior we have in Jesus. What a mighty God.
Let's turn to him together. Father, we thank you for your word. What a gift. It is a lamp into our feet. It is a light into our path. We thank you for the church. We thank you for your spirit given to us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your infinite love for us. As we turn to you now, as we respond to you, I pray that you would continue to minister to us through word and through sacrament. Help us to be a people of praise. We belong to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.